Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview New Testament historian Robert M. Price. Think of mummification. We knew there were mummies, but we didn't know how the heck they did this. How could they preserve them like this? Should we have said, well, it must have been a miracle of Amun Ra? Uh, no, uh, we just didn't know, and now we do. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Bob Price is a professor of theology at Johnny Coleman Theological Seminary in Florida, the former editor of the Journal of Higher Criticism, and the author of many books and articles on religion, including The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man, Jesus is Dead, and Inerrant the Wind. And that's probably the most fun I've had reading through a guest's book titles. <laughs> he is also known as the Bible Geek on a podcast where he answers Bible questions from his listeners. Dr. Price, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, before we talk about history, would you share with us your own faith journey? Well, I remember uh, taking the whole thing uh, very seriously when I was around 11 years old and in Sunday school they were telling us that you had to accept Christ as your personal Savior, you'd go to hell, and I thought, well, I don't want that to happen, and I did agonize over the whole thing, and I got involved pretty soon in the church youth group, and this is a conservative Baptist association church in New Jersey, and I found that it was really great for me uh, as a peer group and a bunch of friends with uh, positive, constructive things to do, and I got really interested in the Bible and all the doctrines supposedly based on it and studying it to see if they were really there, and that really put the hook in me about the curiosity about the Bible, and then I remember one particular evening we had some program, I think it was a film about apologetics. I'd never heard of that before, but here was somebody saying you could pretty much prove that Jesus really existed and the Gospels were accurate and he rose from the dead. Oh, hey, that ain't bad. Uh, and I had just taken these things for granted. I guess I was junior high or so. And I began to read books about this uh, when I was in college. Uh, by that time, I, I really was uh, reading everything I could get by F.F. F. Bruce, John Warwick Montgomery, and all these guys. And I got more and more involved in the church, and the more I used apologetics to talk to people to try to get them to get converted, the more I felt I had to scrutinize the arguments, too, because it would just be utter hypocrisy to ask somebody to believe on the basis of some argument I hadn't even really thought through. So uh, I became my own uh, focus group to test these things out, and that made it more and more difficult to simply have faith anymore. I started moving into this zone where probability and uh, historical plausibility made a difference that it had never made before. And though I still found the arguments for the resurrection, etc., to be cogent, I thought, well, these are all just back and forth arguments. Who the heck really knows? And once I got into Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary and entered on a Master of Theological Studies degree, then I really began to see holes in the whole thing to, to such a degree that I just felt like I had been had. And I was embittered on the one hand, but also 
felt like the world had opened up to me. The, the evangelical worldview had come to be so confining. It just didn't answer questions. It kept me immature. But I finally just decided in, uh, I think it was 1977, well, I'm done with this. Let me see what else there is out there. I loved religion. I still wanted to be some sort of a Christian if I could, as sick as I was of fundamentalism. And I started reading Paul Tillich and Bultmann and all kinds of theologians and comparative religion stuff and more and more biblical criticism, and that was it for a few years until I got tempted back to a very uh, open-minded, unusual Baptist congregation here where I lived, and I was finishing up a Ph.D. in theology from Drew at this time, and my wife and I got involved in this church, and then moved to North Carolina, where I taught for about four and a half years, then went back to New Jersey to pastor that same church, stayed there for a dozen years, and the last six of which I led a living room congregation, just a informal thing, having quit the church. And down here for the last eight years, I've been just kind of working part-time for a couple of schools and mainly writing and, and so on. But I've gone from uh, being a fundamentalist to being, in effect, a kind of religiously sympathetic uh, agnostic. And I guess I still am that. I, I've had to decide whether I consider myself a Christian anymore. And, well, I've been involved with an Episcopal church and really loved that down here in North Carolina, went back to it when we moved here, and I thought, well, do I want to take communion at the church? Uh, I'd better decide if I consider myself a Christian in any way before I do that. And I decided, well, yeah, I guess I do. I, I guess I really do uh, like the Christian ethic. I would like to be in more and more Christ-like, whether there ever was a Jesus, at least we have some idea of the, the figure of Christ as a moral ideal, and decided, uh, yeah, all right, I, I have eventually figured I'm not really a theist, I'm more of one of Tom Altizer's Christian atheists, but uh, what the heck? I just sort of decided I'll just be a kind of a weird centaur or a hybrid of some kind, and if the pieces don't all fit together, so what? And I guess I'm still there and enjoying it uh, even now. <laughs> well, that's a pretty interesting story. Now, before we talk about Jesus, let's talk about history in general. What tools and criteria do historians use to establish what probably happened in the past, and why do they use those tools and criteria instead of some others? Well, ultimately, it's a question of uh, not what we can be sure is true, because there's, there's very little possibility of doing that. It's all probability. I think Thomas Kuhn put it pretty well in the structure of scientific revolutions. You're just trying different theories or paradigms, models of interpretation on the data to see what the most inductive natural sense can be made of it. And if somebody points out that your view doesn't really deal with a whole lot of the evidence, maybe another one would, you're open-minded and you try to, to uh, work that out. What light does this shed on the evidence? And do you realize there may be new data that will arise, there may be new suggestions that are very compelling, and so the critical historian never uh, makes a, a dogmatic commitment. Everything is theoretically open and up for grabs. 
uh, some things would be mighty surprising to find out weren't true, and, and you live close enough to some events in the recent past where it's, uh, there's no serious doubt that uh, you know, the Holocaust happened or the moon landing happened. Um, but on the whole, especially you know with the distant past, it's always iffy. There, there's no dogma that uh, is appropriate. Now, how do you come up with probabilities even? Well, number one, as Collingwood pointed out, there's a difference between being pre-critical historian, what he calls a scissors and paste historian, and being a genuinely critical one. And the difference is the pre-critical historian says, well, I got a bunch of authorities here, uh, various documents, chronicles, whatever, that tell me, here's what happened in the past. Well, gee, it's lucky I've, I've got people to tell me that. Uh, but, oh boy, suppose they don't agree. Uh, well, I, I don't want to lose any source material. I don't want to sit in judgment on my authorities. I'll try to harmonize them the best I can. Uh, to save the most knowledge of the past. Uh, well, uh, that's the way fundamentalists treat the Bible, but historians don't do that anymore. Uh, I guess beginning around the Renaissance, people began to realize, nah, that's not going to work. The critical historian says, I don't have authorities that tell me what happened. I have sources that have data about what happened. Sometimes they're actually trying to describe it. Sometimes they're uh, engaging in propaganda and falsehood, but if I can recognize that, well, there's a history of propaganda too. That tells me something about the past. Why would someone want to distort it? What are they covering up? What really happened, etc.? But it's up to the historian to be the authority. Uh, you don't just believe anything because it's on paper. Uh, you have to justify any uh, even tentative conclusion you come up with. So your documents, your evidence, are witnesses on the stand. You have to justify accepting what they say. You have to verify it if possible. And if you can't, it's, uh, you don't really have any business saying it happened. Now, I, I want to point this out because very often fundamentalists will say, well, you gospel critics, if you took that skeptical stance on everything else, you'd never be sure of anything in history. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's right. And they say, well, you'd never believe anything you read in the paper. Uh, yes, that's exactly right. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been misquoted uh, innocently, but incompetently in the paper. Uh, so I don't, uh, I don't trust anything unless I can uh, somehow verify it. Okay, uh, well, specifically, what kind of uh, questions do you ask of, of, the, of sources? Well, Ernst Trelsch pointed out a bunch of these. One of them is the principle of historical connection or historical context. If you're reading about something that supposedly happened and it's of a major character, that, that it, if it happened, it must have made a, a big impact, and yet there seems to be none. Uh, well, maybe it didn't. Uh, like there's uh, there's a suggestion that Bar Kokhba, second century Jewish Messiah, may have rebuilt the temple uh, in Jerusalem. Well, it, it could be, but it's it's a little bit dubious that nobody else mentions that. Uh, so you you have to wonder. It's not out of the question. But for instance, about the historical Jesus or the historical Buddha or anybody else. 
you've got claims of miracle-working Superman. Well, do they show up on the, on anybody's radar except the religion that worships them? The stories about uh, Jesus are somewhat similar to those of Alexander the Great or Caesar Augustus. Well, uh, Alexander and Caesar Augustus did make huge impacts. You can't understand uh, history of that period without them there. Uh, you don't necessarily believe everything people said about them. Uh, so you begin to wonder, well, have legends begun to encrust this thing? But with some figures, you read about their super exploits, but there's nothing at all about them. And you say, how could they have been so important? And no one mentions them. Like people mention uh, Apollonius of Tyana, contemporary, say, yeah, I met this guy. He's not so bad. He's very wise, etc. Uh, but nothing with Jesus, despite all the superhuman things he did. Makes you wonder. Uh, the Pauline epistles, uh, did Paul really uh, have such an effect as the New Testament would imply when there's no evidence in church history that anybody had any Pauline epistles until the Gnostics? And so a lot of these things come up. If, you, if somebody said, well, there was a Third World War, you just missed it. <laughs> Wait a minute. No, no, I'm, I'm afraid we, we would hear a good bit about it. <laughs> okay, that's one of them, uh, historical connectedness. Uh, another is the principle of analogy, that uh, we don't know that things have always happened the way they do now, but unless we assume that, we can't infer anything about the past. Uh, if we don't assume that uh, physics and chemistry have always worked by the same laws, we're just going to believe anything any nut says. If somebody says, oh, I changed lead into gold, uh, oh, well, I guess he did. Uh, nah, uh, it's, uh, you know, you can't do that now. We have no reason to think you could do it then. Oh, I, I met a guy today that uh, turned into a werewolf and the full moon came out. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, I, uh, I know of no one who has ever seriously claimed to have seen that, so there's no analogy in current-day experience to such a claim, but by golly, there are fictional stories and movies where that happens. I bet you this really is more one of those. Now, this comes in handy when you look at uh, Jesus, just to get ahead of the game. If I read that this guy has walked on water uh, and changed water into wine and then risen from the dead, well, gee, I don't know of any such events in the case of uh, Napoleon or George Washington, Abe Lincoln, anybody, the Dalai Lama, the Pope, no, none, no such claims. But, boy, I sure do remember reading stuff about Pythagoras and the Buddha and uh, the dying and rising gods of the mystery religions. It sounds so much like that. What are the chances? Now, where does this belong? It's, it's much more analogous to these things everybody understands to be legend because they have no correspondence with what we actually see. And so uh, you don't know that these things didn't happen. We don't have a time machine, but what are the chances? Uh, then you can go on to other stuff like uh, modest versus spectacular versions of the same thing. You've got side-by-side uh, -side in Exodus 
stories whereby uh, God saves Israel at the Reds, or actually the Sea of Reeds, by piling up the waters like walls on either side, as in the Charlton Heston movie. And you've also got a story where the Egyptian artillery gets stuck in the mud of a swamp, the Sea of Reeds, and the Israelis turn on them with uh, weapons and cut them all down and have a surprising uh, victory. Which of these things do you suppose happened? And if, if you had the more spectacular version as the original version, who would make up a less spectacular version? But if you had a more modest one to begin with, it's easy to see how somebody would exaggerate it. Now, we weren't there. We don't know what happened. It's all probabilities. And you have to ask yourself, well, I guess probably the more modest one. And so on down the line, they're, they're all probabilistic, and there's no way to be certain, but that's the nature of the game. You know, there's no reason to bemoan the fact that there's no certainty available or that people are not going to agree. It's an ongoing scholarly uh, task. So that's some of the main uh, laws, I'd say, of historical inquiry. Well, famous Christian apologist William Lane Craig has popularized the work of uh, C.B. McCullough and his criteria for best explanations of historical facts. And he lists, for example, that the best explanation of uh, historical data would be one that uh, has great explanatory power, meaning mm -hmm. that the explanation would make the facts very probable as opposed to partly probable. It, how much merit would you give that planetary criterion? If it just means the same thing Thomas Kuhn means, that if you have a paradigm that would n seem to naturally and inductively explain most of the data, well, everybody thinks that. But if he says, as I think he does, that uh, only a supernatural argument would explain this and that, that runs into trouble elsewhere. Like if you talk to UFO abductees, the thing that would allow you to believe most of what they say, if that's the goal, is sheer credulity. Well, Zeke, I guess you were taken, you were beamed up to the ship. That would sure uh, allow me to believe everything you're saying, but then you got a lot of other questions that arise. Why are the aliens described differently by different people? Why are there historical evolutions of what aliens and UFOs look like? Why are these people all failing or shunning lie detector tests? Why are they all half-educated or drunk, etc., etc.? It begins to look like bad data. Uh, when you say the supernaturalism is involved, a slightly different thing, that runs afoul of scientific method because it's positing a so-called explanation that doesn't explain anything. Gee, where'd this amazingly complex world come from? Oh, that's a real puzzle. Let's call it X. Well, I got the answer to X. Why? Uh, how about Z? God created it. And, and what is this God? Well, we don't know. Uh, just, you know, something that could have created it. Some almighty being that, that creates. Look, <laughs> as Tillich said, you're just hypostatizing the question. You're not answering it. Uh, and uh, that's the way it is with supernaturalism all the time. Why does it rain? Well, Zeus turns on the faucet. Now, wait a minute. That can't be. Even if there's a Zeus, how does it happen? I have to, to, to know that if you just say, well, God saith unto a thing, be, and it is, as the Quran says, that's not an explanation.
it's just a kind of an abdication of explanation. So the retreat to supernaturalism, even if there is a supernatural, is not a historical or a scientific explanation. There must be means by which things happen. But doesn't just what you've just said prove that you have a kind of anti-supernatural bias? No, it's it's just a question of how it becomes a, a, an unpredictable X factor. It's like what the historian is doing for the past is just what the weather forecaster does for the future, or any futurologist, any science, uh, what is it, uh, scientific uh, sociologist, who says, now I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but I can predict that if certain trends we can trace continue, this is what ought to happen. But who knows? You know, maybe, maybe we'll be struck by an asteroid. Uh, maybe there'll be some kind of unforeseen uh, earth tremor that'll spew ash into the air like Mount Pinatubo, and we'll have a winter all year one year. Who knows? Uh, but uh, you can always be surprised. But short of that, this is what we can uh, quote predict unquote. And so the historian says, look, we don't know that there are no, no gods involved and, and so on in the Trojan War, let's say, fighting on the sides of the two countries, but uh, we, we can't take that into account. If it's true, there's no way to trace it, because it would, be, it would lack any sort of historical connection. It asks us to believe things that, again, they're not uh, evidence for. I mean, you, you could read about Apollonius or Jesus or the Buddha and say, you know, I think maybe they were a god incarnate. Well, maybe they were, but that's not a historical judgment. It's a matter of faith. Uh, there's no evidence that could, could show you that. Elias Bultmann freely admitted, the supposed arch-skeptic, that Jesus must have done what he and his contemporaries considered miracles. Well, if that means that you could believe that because you can go today to certain churches and see people delivered of demons and supposedly healed, so it matches the analogy of experience, yes, that's true. There might have been exorcism and healing going on. Now, as to whether you think that once happened by a miracle or does today, that's a whole different question. That's philosophical or faith-based or something. The, the historian only wants to know, if I'd have been there, is it likely I would have seen Jesus with exorcism meetings going on? Yeah, not unlikely. And so that's, it's, it's a whole different question. There may well be a God. There may be miracles, but that doesn't mean there are no legends. And how do you know whether it was a miracle or a legend? Well, unfortunately, we don't have a, a lot of miracles happening today uh, that uh, give us a historical analogy. And when we do seem to have them, they're quite easily debunked. And so you begin to wonder, had I been there, would I have seen uh, fakery? They had a name for those guys in that, that day. Apollonius was considered a goetes, a charlatan magician. They knew they had tricks and so on. Uh, so is it possible that's what we're seeing? We're seeing wonders, but even the New Testament speaks of lying wonders, uh, gimmicks and so on. So the historian can't really tell uh, you just know that certain people believe certain things. And whether they really happen or not, we'd need a time machine. Anything's possible, but what is probable? That's all the historian can deal with. Hmm. 
So would you defend Hume's argument against miracles, though, then saying that there's, there might be miracles in the past, but there's no way that the historian could show that? Yeah, that's, he said exactly the same thing, essentially, before Trouch did. C.S. Lewis and others insist that Hume was circular, that he said that the universal experience of mankind is against the occurrence of miracles. Oh, well, that means, doesn't it, Lewis says, that uh, uh, universal experience, you mean no one has ever experienced it, right? Well, then I guess it hasn't happened, but that's just the point at issue. That's not what Hume means. He's saying we all know how easy it is for people to misunderstand things and to make uh, claims of, of miracles and you check it out and find out they were wrong about something. That's all Hume's talking about. He's saying, given the tendency to exaggerate and misunderstand and then make miracle claims, what are the chances that the one you just heard is true or that the one in an ancient document is true? Could have happened, but uh, isn't it always going to be more likely somebody has misunderstood something? I was told uh, when I was a pastor that this street guy that kind of hung around the church and we gave money to, that uh, he was dead. I'd known this guy for years. Well, I reported this to the congregation. Someone told me he died. Too bad. What a tragedy. Then a couple of months later, <laughs> he's alive again. He's risen from the dead. Uh, no, I just got misinformed. I mean, what are the chances that this guy really came back to life? Nobody was claiming that, but they could have. And, and uh, I, I know enough to say, no, nah, I bet I was just misinformed. Since that happens so often, it's never going to seem probable that it really happened. If you could get in there and verify, if that's another matter, but I don't think anybody's been able to. If they do, great. I'd love to see it. I, I don't prefer there not being any miracles. I don't prefer there not being a god. That just isn't part of what I can deal with as, as a historian. Well, I think elsewhere, Hume seems to indicate that there might actually be a way for the historian to establish the occurrence of a miracle. I think he gives an example I'll spruce it up for modern times, but it goes something like this. If we found a document in Japan that was carbon dated to 2000 BC, and we found a, you know, a hieroglyphic in Egypt that was dated to pretty much exactly the same time, and we found some uh, ancient civilization from you know, Antarctica that we didn't know had existed, but their work was uh, carbon dated to 2000 BC. And they all reported the sun going black and the same very specifically described uh, kind of deity appearing in the sky. Would that kind of thing be sufficient evidence to establish the occurrence of a genuine miracle? It could be that, but that's still vague enough that we would have to say there must have been some bizarre meteorological phenomena. What happened? Is it that there was some sort of black canopy covering the earth because of uh, volcanoes for, for a while? Something must have happened because, uh, they, as you're suggesting, they didn't get it from each other. And uh, so I would say something happened, but you'd then have to ask, well, what? Let's formulate some theories. But one of them that would not be a historical theory because it simply wouldn't be fruitful to approach it that way is, was this a god? 
uh, causing this, like in the movie The Next Voice You Hear or something. Uh, because if you just say, oh, well, God did it, uh, that's like saying, well, like a, a demon-possessed guy, what's wrong with oh? The devil made him do it. You can find, well, no, there's some lesion on his brain or he's a schizophrenic or whatever. I, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, I mean, usually things that are baffling are baffling only until we scrutinize them further, if there's enough evidence to do that. In this kind of Velikovskian sort of example you give, you'd probably never find enough evidence, but you would have to conclude that some odd thing was seen all over the world. Wonder what it was. Now, I know Hume says that if the proposed explanation of an odd event required even more faith than the miracle did, or as I take him to mean, was even more outrageous and implausible sounding, uh-huh. well then, uh, all you'd be left with is, is believing that there was the miracle. Uh, that's a very good point. And I think of that, for instance, in terms of explanations of psychic uh, phenomena, where you hear, I don't disregard all anecdotal proofs, if somebody gives you this very striking story of telepathy or ESP or something, you say, well, geez, uh, maybe it was just a matter of the right place and the right time or just a chance, this and that, or maybe they had heard this thing before and forgotten it. And now it's, yeah, a lot of these things sound so far-fetched. They're like fundamentalist harmonizations. And, uh, and, and so I begin to think, yeah, you know, I cannot let go the possibility that there might be some sort of thing like telepathy because I don't understand what could be going on, but these explanations, trying to explain it away, sounds so contrived. Or some UFO reports are like that, uh, that uh, somebody sure seems to have seen some kind of weird uh, behaving aerial object. And I know it's just swamp gas. No, no, it can't be that. Something else is going on. But that, again, would not entitle you to say what was going on. It isn't necessarily Ming the Merciless. Uh, but you have to remain open as to what it might be. But a question isn't an answer. And, uh, and that's, uh, apologists want us to accept dogmatically something that they can only attempt to show is possible. And ironically, the more they try to make ostensible miracles probable, the more they evacuate them of their miraculous character. Like when they say, well, uh, you know, the Bethlehem star, you ought to believe in it. It's not that odd because astronomy shows that there was alignment of planets and this and that and the other thing or a supernova and the wise men could have seen it. Don't you see what you're doing there? By giving the only kind of explanation that can be calculated as the probability, a naturalistic scientific one with data you can analyze, you're showing that if it did happen, no miracle is required to have caused it. The more you can analyze it in scientific categories, the less faith you need to believe it. And what is faith? It's just the will to believe. And here's where the, uh, the odd-seeming theory of the swooning of Jesus on the cross comes in historically, the idea that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. He was crucified, but uh, he survived, which is certainly possible that it's happened. Seems sort of unlikely to people. Why did anyone ever suggest that? Well, they said, uh, look, um, Jesus appeared 
to his disciples alive on Easter. That's what we want you to believe. Uh, well, it's not so unbelievable as you skeptics say. Uh, suppose he simply wasn't really killed and then appeared on Easter. He is risen. Hallelujah. Yeah, but look what you've paid to, to, to establish that as scientifically reasonable. Uh, it's not a miracle anymore. What's the big deal even if it did happen? And they, they seem to be oblivious to this. Uh, there's several examples of that. You just, if, if it's a miracle, the only way to believe it, if that's your goal, if you feel like, oh, yeah, I've got to believe this, is simply the will to believe. You say, I'm going to believe it. I think that is grossly irresponsible. It's intellectually dishonest. But that's the only way to go. Why don't you just admit it and, instead of trying to pretend uh, it's uh, the, uh, the bottom line of, of a historical investigation? Hmm. So it sounds like you're saying that even if we don't have a very plausible naturalistic explanation for some extraordinary event, that doesn't entitle us to just say, well, then it must be a supernatural explanation. For example, right. let, let's, say, let's say the only two theories for the evidence that we have about Jesus and his death and uh, the belief of the disciples afterward and all that, let's say the only two theories that we had were either like a twin theory where Jesus has a twin that walks around and people think that Jesus uh, resurrected, or that he almost died on the cross, but not quite, and he laid and healed in the tomb for a little while. Both of those seem like really a far stretch. Well, actually, neither one of them does. I mean, either one of those is, is not all that odd, though either is much more plausible than a dead guy coming back from his grave. Right. I mean, neither of those is that implausible. Things like that have happened. I guess what I was trying to say is that both of those, they happen, you know, more often than a guy coming back from the dead. Mm. But they're still, like, just by themselves, they're very implausible. But even to say that they're fairly implausible, that doesn't mean that we can just say, well, all naturalistic explanations are implausible, therefore it was magic. That's right. To think of mummification. We knew there were mummies, but we didn't know how the heck they did this. How could they preserve them like this? Should we have said, well, it must have been a miracle of Amun-Ra? Uh, no, uh, we just didn't know, and now we do. Some clever person rediscovered the process by which they mummified people. Uh, it's, you can't say, well, look, not only do I not yet know, I know that I will never know. You can't possibly justify a dogma like that. You have to keep an open mind and see what happens. It's like saying, you know, I know we're never going to find a cure for cancer. You don't know that. Keep researching. Are you just going to give up? It's the same sort of a thing, but people don't see it because apologists are not motivated by historical curiosity. They have no questions. They just have answers that they want to ram home to themselves or their, uh, their customers. Um, uh, this thing with Hume saying the the uh, alternative, the explanation would have to be more fantastic and far-fetched than the miracle. This is the stock in trade of of uh, ninth, well, eight, really 18th century rationalist apologetics. 
that's where all these arguments saying, well, oh, the, the, the women disciples go to the wrong tomb. Oh, come on, that's ridiculous. I don't see how it is, but let's say it is. Uh, that's like, what, did Jesus not actually die and appeared alive again? Oh, that's absurd. Uh, uh, did they have a case of mistaken identity and think it was the gardener when it, and it really was, but they thought it was Jesus? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, how did Jesus get past the guards, et cetera, et cetera? Well, you see then uh, that uh, there's no other, uh, no other reasonable theory than that a guy who was dead came back to life. Now, that's, you know, this is just not the case. None of these things are really implausible. They're all kind of odd things, but there are things that have historical parallels. You're dealing with an odd situation, no question about that, but even if we had to say we don't know what happened at the tomb of Jesus, that would not uh, force us to conclude God must have raised him from the dead, but it doesn't even come to that, in fact. There really is no problem with several alternative explanations. And so we're getting uh, suckered uh, by these people that, well, here's an example of what Hume meant. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, it's just a lot of bamboozling. Well, I like your mummy example. I think another good example is Stonehenge. For a long time, we didn't uh. know how Stonehenge could be built with the kinds of technology and human power that they had 2,500 years before Christ. But just recently, in the last few years, there was a guy who figured it out and actually did it. He made his own Stonehenge yeah. with nothing but, you know, uh, logs and branches and his own one person of power. Unbelievable, wow. Yeah, so we went for hundreds of years having no good natural explanation for Stonehenge. Or the pyramids. Uh, did, uh, did space aliens build pyramids? Old Charlton Aston asked. Well, uh, no. There's uh, just no reason <laughs> to think so. Yes, there is no. <laughs> well, yeah, it seems like there's just a real general problem with offering as an explanation for something just saying magic, whether it's magic of Zeus or Yahweh or whoever. Because uh, there's just no content to that explanation. There's just nothing we can do with that kind of explanation. And if we accept magic as a scientific or historical explanation, then we can just as well accept a billion magical accounts of it. I mean, it might as well be the flying spaghetti monster who did Stonehenge because he likes big rocks. Yeah, who knows? It could be anything. Once you open up the vault of the imagination like that, you still don't have an explanation because it could be any god or demon or magician. Plus, you have to ask yourself, what do I mean by miracle? If there is a god who has power to do anything, does that exclude there being means to do it? Or does he just say, uh, let's have a pepperoni pizza and one materializes? Uh, I mean, even on Star Trek, where they do that with the food replicators, we're to understand there is some sort of physics involved. Is there when God does a miracle? I, I don't know that I've ever heard that explained even. Presumably, as Thales said, you know, maybe Zeus making it rain, but how? Mustn't there be some means? We may one day run into a brick wall, but uh, there's no reason to stop now. Well, you recently contributed to a book called The Historical Jesus, Five Views by InterVarsity Press. Who are the other four contributors, and what are their views? Uh, let's see. Uh, John Dominic Crossan uh, thinks in terms of, uh, as, as does Richard Horsley and some others, of Jesus as a kind of a... Uh, first century Gandhi and E.F. Schumacher, a kind of a social, or a, an Obama, sort of a community organizer, and Rome didn't like uh, Jesus uh, 
starting these acorn chapters with uh, full of prostitutes and tax collectors, and so they crucified him. <laughs> I find Crossan's analysis of particular Jesus sayings and so on is very acute and very helpful, but his larger hypotheses are much more mortar than brick. I find him very unconvincing. Then there's Luke Timothy Johnson who has a strange combination of Catholic traditionalism and uh, critical method. Uh, he has done very good uh, critical studies of Acts, for example, but he's moved to this thing where he says, look, really, the critics are right. We, we can't really know anything about the historical Jesus by historical method. The, the evidence is too biased and too scanty and skimpy. So let's just not reconstruct it. Let's believe in the Jesus of the church. And while we're at it, let's just accept all the traditional things the church says about the Bible. A very strange gesture and Hyde kind of a combination. And then there's James D.G. Dunn, who I think is some sort of Baptist, a British evangelical, though. He used to be uh, uh, more of a critical historian, but has moved back into the apologetics uh, category in the last uh, decades. I've, I've read a lot of his work over many years. He just says, well, it's possible that there was faithful transmission of the teaching of this master Jesus, and therefore we're justified in believing there was. It's just the old evangelical apologetic bias. Unless we can just blow traditional views out of the water, they're innocent until proven guilty. He's what the James Barr used to call a maximal conservative. I think he's still just taking tradition for granted. Then Daryl Bach from Dallas Seminary, uh, he basically just says, okay, the traditional thing is true. We can harmonize away any difficulties to wind up believing as much of it as we can. And our real goal is to illuminate this stuff by reference to Josephus and Roman historians and stuff like that. Jesus really was the founder of Christianity, the Son of God. That's what he believed, and that's what we ought to believe. It's just apologetics, uh, not history uh, writing. I think that's all four of them. Paula Fredericks was supposed to be in it, but uh, she couldn't and bowed out. But uh, the others I just regard as traditional Christian scholars who are, are try I mean, they certainly are scholarly, but they're just not critical historians. They're still way too influenced by their inherited dogmas. And what about this Paula Fredericks? What's, what are her views? Uh, she's pretty much like Bart Ehrman. Uh, she, she believes Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet. In fact, I'm amazed Ehrman isn't in the book. He's like the, the poster boy for a New Testament scholarship and an agnostic, but he takes, I think, very conservative views. Jesus, as Schweitzer said, was an apocalyptic preacher at the end of the age. I think that is far from clear. That he's, He accepts all kinds of data that Bultmann wouldn't have touched with a 10-foot pole. And, uh, again, he, he is way too credulous about the tradition. When you see how virtually every narrative in the Gospels and Acts can be plausibly understood as a rewrite of something from the Septuagint, Euripides, or Homer, that's really got to cast doubt on whether there's any historical material. So I, I just am amazed uh, these guys are still as stuck in the ecclesiastical mud as they are. Well, most of these other historians that you're saying are stuck in the ecclesiastical mud would say that yours is the view that's outrageous and, and on the fringe. Oh, it, it certainly is. It's a minority view. 
but that could be for a couple of reasons. Uh, as uh, Kuhn says again in the structure of scientific revolutions, he says you always have a process of readjustment when most most scientists in his case are what he calls representatives of normative science, the conventional view. Somebody comes along with some new hypothesis that they're all excited about and everyone is very skeptical. Who is this whippersnapper with this unorthodox view? And, and it's a good thing they are resistant to it because it forces is the new guy to show the strength of the new paradigm by subjecting it to rigorous criticism. And eventually, when the older generation who become just too invested in what was normative science in their day, when they die off or retire and new people come in with more of a willingness to look at all the options, this crazy view then may become if it does pass through the scrutiny, it becomes normative science, and it may become too entrenched, and it's going to take a lot to dislodge it. That's what's happened with Copernicus and Galileo and the guy with the continental drift theory, whatever his name was. So is the fringe view, it could be Mary Baker Eddy, but it might be Martin Luther. It could be Velikovsky, but it might be Copernicus. It's simply irrelevant to take a nose count and say, oh, Dr. Price, no one believes what you're saying except you. Yeah, I don't care about that. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, you don't settle truth by majority vote. It just doesn't matter. You have to look at the arguments, which in my experience, no one does. There's a well-defined area of discourse, and if you're outside it, you're not welcome here. Not that I want to be, uh, but I'm no stake in establishment academia. But that really doesn't matter. You have to, if you're interested in the topic, you yourself are responsible to look at the questions and the evidence. And I came to the views that I held that I once considered crazy and couldn't believe I would ever hold. But I wound up embracing them. Now, it doesn't matter to me whether no one else accepts them, but uh, I'm not on some crusade. But it does not impress me for a critic to point out the obvious that I'm in the minority. Why am I wrong? That's what I'd like to hear. Mm. Well, and there seems to be a special problem with doing a head count in a field like historical Jesus scholarship, where, at least to me, it looks like most of the scholars are Christians and always have been. And that's even what's contained in a recent survey article of the literature by Gary Habermas, as he says, you know, well, isn't it amazing that 75% of uh, historical Jesus scholars think that there was an empty tomb? But really, that's not that amazing because in the same paper, he says that 75% of the scholars he surveyed actually thought that Jesus rose from the dead, which is basically the definition of being a Christian. So it looks like, you know, I don't want to commit a genetic fallacy here, but it, it's just not that surprising to hear that yours is a fringe view in a field of study that's very apologetic in nature. It's kind of like saying, well, isn't it amazing that 75% of scholars of the Quran think that it couldn't have been written by a human being? It's like, well, <laughs> you know, that's not very surprising at all, because most people who are going to spend their lives studying the Quran are Muslims and always have been and are there to defend the Muslim faith. Exactly. That, that's true. And, and even more, one thing that the recent generation of genuinely critical scholars of Islam, not necessarily Muslims, have shown is that the great uh, Western Islamic scholars 
like Noldica and others, have just bought hook, line, and sinker what the Sunni imam said about the Quran, who wrote it when, why, where, and all that. Right. And they're just utterly uncritical. And now, finally, people are saying, well, why should we accept their catechism? Let's take a look at it, at it ourselves. And, and, and the whole thing has been thrown open. Uh, Ibn Warwick is uh, great for compiling a lot of this uh, research. Now, that's very fringe, but they are almost certainly correct. And you're right. The mainstream is either actual Muslims or people that naively said, well, this is their scripture. They must know about it. Uh, no, they don't. And, and I think it's the same way here. Now, I'm not, again, I don't want to commit an ad hominem fallacy and, and uh, say, well, you see, that's why they're wrong. No, it's just that it, it's certainly enough of a suspicion to uh, counteract their fallacious appeal to the majority. In my view, it just does not make any difference why anybody believes what they do. They could be lucky enough to be right. Yeah. It doesn't matter who believes it, uh, a majority or minority. Let's look at the arguments, which no one does in, in uh, certain areas here. Hmm. Well, an interesting case here is, uh, I'm not sure what it's called, maybe from the Christian context we'll call it Old Testament criticism, where... The mainstream view used to be extremely conservative for Christian and Jewish faith because that's who most of the scholars were. Um, but recently it seems like that whole field of study has been shifting into a more critical history type of view such that Old Testament history is now more done like other fields of study like history of China or something. Is that right? Oh, yeah, you, you're certainly correct. The so-called Old Testament minimalism, where people just, uh, well, the, people used to follow uh, William Foxwell Albright, who certainly was a great, great scholar, as, as a lot of these people are, uh, but uh, he approached archaeology with saying, well, okay, it says there was Sodom and Gomorrah, more or less around the Dead Sea. Let's find it. Oh, there's a structure there. That must have been it. Solomon had stables uh, somewhere. That can be construed as a stable. Well, that's got to be it. Uh, but when you... Uh, don't take that approach as Thomas L. Thompson and others have done and just started to look at the evidence and see the most natural inductive approach to it. It's shockingly different. It turns out there, there can have been no exodus. Uh, it's just not that we don't know where it was. There would be evidence and there is not. There is no evidence of a Solomonic temple or a Davidic palace on Mount Zion or that there even was such a kingdom. Uh, it's until very late in the day, uh, and we, we eventually know there was an Amrid dynasty in Israel, but where'd they come from? Not from King Saul and the prophet Samuel and so on. And uh, I uh, am amazed, really. The, I thought there was some basic historicity to it going back through, let's say, the prophet Samuel, but apparently not. And the same thing is happening with the Quran. There is no evidence that Mecca was any more than just a gas pump and a convenience store at the time of Muhammad. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's just, it's, it's astounding. And the same thing with the New Testament. There, there is no evidence of an inhabited Nazareth until just before the Gospels were written. Uh, around 50 A.D., you find the first signs of Nazareth being inhabited again uh, in centuries. It was a very old habitation, but no one had been there during the ostensible time of Jesus. 
But there was a Nazareth by the time the Gospels were written, and they just understood Jesus the Nazarene to mean the guy from Nazareth because there was such a place in their day. But uh, there's no synagogues in Galilee to speak of. And uh, it just looks like the New Testament is completely inaccurate as well. It's not skepticism. It's a thing where surely there would be evidence if any of this stuff had happened. Would God send angels with vacuum cleaners to, to get rid of it all, to test our faith? It's ridiculous. Now, do you have any hope that, say, New Testament criticism or historical Jesus studies will go the way of Old Testament studies and become a more critical field of study like, you know, history of China or history of the Roman Empire? That's beginning to happen. Uh, Hector Avalos and I and Frank Zindler and Earl Doherty and various others uh, have put together a new little subgroup, work group, whatever they call it, in the Society for Biblical Literature uh, called the, the Secular Criticism of the Bible, where the point is exactly what you said, not to disprove the Bible, that's irrelevant, uh, and that's no one's goal, but to just look at it without the blinders of dogma. And more and more stuff is being written this way, and so I think we may... Uh, have the door slightly cracked open toward real scientific criticism. You've talked about some of the reasons that you doubt the typical Christian dogma about who the historical Jesus was, but I wonder if now you might explain what type of picture of Jesus emerges when you apply these tools of critical history to the historical Jesus. What kind of view of the historical Jesus do you have? I think there wasn't one. Uh, if there was, he's been completely concealed behind legend and the fabrication of hadith about him that uh, really represent the early community. Uh, and this represents the convergence of several lines of inquiry that I, I never thought would bring me where they have. For instance, um, the, uh, this, this fact that uh, virtually all the narratives of the Gospels look like rewrites from the Old Testament. I combed through several books where authors followed up this hypothesis, and some, some of their comparisons I thought were far-fetched, but I found when I was done that, uh, to my satisfaction, this one or that one had come up with a very likely uh, Old Testament basis, so likely that, again, it seemed... Uh, harder to explain it away. I wrote this up in a long piece called uh, New Testament Narrative as Old Testament Midrash that appeared in a uh, big uh, two-volume thing that uh, uh, Jacob Neusner edited, uh, Midrash, an encyclopedia of Jewish interpretation or something. Uh, and uh, it just seems to me that it, it all looks like it's rewritten Old Testament with a bit of the Odyssey and the Iliad thrown in. Uh, however, bracket that, um, you look at it in terms of the, uh, the mythic hero archetype, like uh, Alan Dundas and uh, Lord Raglan and uh, Otto Rank and others have applied to all kinds of myths, Oedipus, the Buddha, uh, Apollonius, you name it. There, there's about uh, 20 features that occur again and again in hero myths, right. uh, including even the, the crowd proclaiming the guy king and then betraying him, and then he dies on a hilltop, and there's something funny about his burial, and he's, his body disappears and all this. It seems like every 
bit of the Gospels conforms to that. There, there's no secular residue as there is with some of the heroes that must have existed, like Caesar Augustus. Uh, that he's int- intricately connected with the history of the period. Jesus is not. Uh, and so uh, that strikes me as very odd if we have a real historical figure. Or you can take a look at one of the chief criteria of form criticism, the criterion of dissimilarity. Uh, On the one hand, New Testament scholars commonly say that if there is a saying attributed to Jesus that sounds an awful lot like the early church, we uh, have to assume that it's the early church attributing their view to him, especially since several of these things differ. You've got two or three views about the Gentile mission, about fasting, about divorce, uh, various things. Well, he couldn't have said them all. Well, how do we know he said any of them? Uh, so uh, if, if he sounds a lot like the early church, we don't know any better than to say that came from the early church, not Jesus. If he sounds an awful lot like Judaism, well, you have to assume they just attributed to him something the scribes were saying, because that's true very often, uh, verbal parallels to parables, uh, halakhic decisions like the Corban thing in Mark 7. Uh, it sounds so much like it that you, and with the same thing is true in the, the uh, Mishnah, the same uh, opinion is attributed to three or four different guys. Who knows who originally said it? Uh, well, then, uh, so... Jesus might have said it, but we kind of have to assume that uh, that might have been borrowed from Judaism. What do you got left? Well, some like Bultmann and Perrin and others said, we have this radical prophet of the end of the world and all this. But uh, I don't think you do, especially since another one of the big uh, criteria is the belief that nothing survived in the Jesus tradition that was not useful to the church. For instance, uh, how was Jesus educated? What did Jesus look like? Uh, what was his favorite ice cream flavor? We know that for the Guru Maharaji, but we don't know it about Jesus. Well, you know, why don't we? Well, people just weren't interested in that. They were interested in specifically religious stuff. Okay, uh, I can understand that. But uh, wait a minute. If you say everything that survived in the Jesus tradition served the needs of the church, That goes right back to the criterion of dissimilarity. That means it's all quite likely to have been invented by the church. So if there was a historical Jesus, there is no access to what he might really have said. Uh, The the, the criteria gobble each other up. Uh, And and so I think there really is, there's no way to be sure that there wasn't a Jesus, but it seems to me the burden of proof is on the one that would say there was. Hmm. Now, a lot of people are going to say that, well, wait a minute, Dr. Price, we've got better evidence for Jesus than we do for a lot of historical figures that we all kind of agree exist. For example, we've got multiple documents attesting to Jesus's uh, existence and his death under Pontius Pilate. We've got uh, non-Christian documents, the documents that we have are much, much earlier than the copies that we have for, say, the works of Plato or Julius Caesar, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, Don't we have pretty good evidence for some person named Jesus existing, whether or not he magically rose from the dead? Oddly enough, no. I would have thought so. But when you look very carefully at this, you find out 
there are no contemporary reports of Jesus by non-Christians or Christians, and that is what you would need to make this defense from non-Christian writings. It doesn't help us to know that Josephus in 90 or 100 uh, mentioned Jesus. If he did, I think that's clearly an interpolation in the one case and a misreading of the thing about James and Jesus and the other. But let's assume he did mention Jesus. Nobody doubts that Christians were saying they had a Savior named Jesus in 100 AD. Uh, that's all he's getting. Or Tacitus, he talks about the framing of a Roman fire on the Christians and their horrible execution on that. And he says, well, in case you don't know who they were, they were founded by a guy named Crestus uh, back in Israel when Pontius Pilate was the prefect, etc., etc. He, he doesn't have independent access to it. He's, this is just what Christians said. You know, here's our founder. At least we don't know. He doesn't even know to call him Jesus. So all we have is references to Christian preaching. Well, it's like the Muslim scholars just repeating what the Muslims told them. Yeah, that's right. Now, in the case of Islam, we actually do have non-Muslim references to early Muslims that tell very strange stories, implying that Muhammad was originally kind of John the Baptist figure for the guy we know as the Caliph uh, Umar. Uh, he was known as Umar al-Farouk, Umar the Redeemer. Uh, and there's, there's some evidence that indicates he was supposed to be a messiah and that uh, Muhammad was a front man for him. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting stuff, but we lack that in the case of Jesus. There, there, we have it in the case of Sabbatai Tzavi, a Jewish messiah of the 17th century. We don't happen to have it for Jesus. Uh, so there's no uh, early enough material that, uh, that refers to Jesus. What we would need is some guy saying, I met Jesus, as we have with, oh yeah, I met Jesus. Proteus Peregrinus, the cynic martyr. I met Apollonius of Tyana. We just don't happen to have that with Jesus. Now, in terms of the multiple Christian sources, it's much debated, but I think very clear that uh, there is no historical Jesus mentioned in the Pauline epistles whenever you think they were written and by whomever. There's all this weird stuff about the Son of God uh, being uh, crucified by angelic enemies. And it seems to me to be most naturally explained by saying it's another version of the Gnostic myth of the primal man being done in at the dawn of time by the archons and so forth. Uh, there's nothing about Jesus as a teacher or a miracle worker or a healer, etc. And in fact, the only thing that actually says he was born in Galatians, born of a woman, born under law, uh, this is an obvious interpolation. Uh, as if somebody is just going to offer the, the fact that, well, one thing about George Washington, he was born. What? Uh, why say that unless you're trying to combat a view that said there was no historical Jesus, right. as some back then even thought? And there's plenty of evidence Galatians is interpolated anyhow. And an interpolation is when a later author inserts his own sentence or phrase into, a, into the original document. Yeah, this is only given one side. Let me explain this, and a footnote can be copied in by the next guy copying, thinking, oh, someone left this out and filled it in on the margin. I'll put it back where it belongs. Uh-oh. And you can weed out a bunch of those. Compare the RSV with the King James. You can see they've done that. They weeded a bunch out. Well, uh, so we, we don't have any historical Jesus in the epistles. 
Well, what about the Gospels? Is that like several uh, different works? No, they they all reduce to uh, Q and Mark, and, and even worse than that, um, you know this this uh, criterion of multiple attestation. Mm-hmm. that it, it looks good for a saying to really go back to Jesus or, or an event if we find it in more than one stream of the tradition. Well, I think that is worthless, too, because there's all kinds of multiple variations of rumors and myths. I mean, you've got to believe in Zeus because there are a number of stories that depict them. Uh, but at any rate, this is a, this is all a function of one's theory about the synoptic relationships. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, are they independent accounts? Of course, they're not. And most scholars think, well, all scholars believe that they're mutually dependent. The only question is who's copying from whom. And most folks think, and of course that doesn't prove it, but but I, I go along with the, the classical Mark and Q two-source hypothesis, mm-hmm. namely that you had this list of sayings, kind of like a book of Proverbs attributed to Jesus, uh, and you had a uh, narrative with some teaching, Mark's Gospel, and then you had a subsequent state, Matthew and Luke, using each, using both of those sources, combining them in slightly different ways, and each embellishing them with a lot of other material, the so-called L and M sources, which I think it's just the the creativity of the two evangelists. Well, can't you at least say, if you find something in common between Mark and Q, then that's double attestation at least. Well, no, you can't, because there's uh, a good case that uh, uh, this one scholar, Fledermann, uh, offers that Mark knew and used Q. Uh, that there's a lot of stuff he didn't care to use for some reason, but that when you find parallels between Mark and Q, like when uh, Matthew will have two versions of the take up your cross saying, or the Beelzebub controversy, or the blasphemy against the the Son of Man saying, uh, well, one of them he got from Q, one he got from Mark. Luke has the same doublets, so they must have both picked up both the Q and the Mark versions. Well, the easiest explanation for that is, the most economical explanation is, that Mark has picked it up from Q and redacted it. And so there aren't any, there can't be any multiple attestations. If you find something that sounds like a Jesus saying in one of the epistles, it's just incredible to argue, as Don and others do, that these are unattributed Jesus sayings. You're not going to quote the Son of God and not say who you're quoting if you're trying to win an argument. Uh, It's much more likely that these early Christian sayings were eventually attributed to Jesus. And so there are no multiple attestations. They only think there are because of a particular theory of synoptic relations that is really on the block. Now that's fascinating. Well, I want to end by asking you about a different topic you're a non-believer, and yet you love the Bible, and you love theology, and that's very obvious in your audio courses on modern Christian theology and so on, which are awesome, by the way, like the stuff uh, that uh, is put out by the teaching company, but with all that good old Bob Price flavor. Uh, <laughs> when are those audio courses going to be available again? They suddenly disappeared one day. 
Well, it's because the producer of all of our stuff suddenly disappeared. He decided he was more interested in left-wing politics and just sort of said, sayonara, good luck. And uh, he had been the one who made these things available on uh, Lulu and all this, and uh, he had the copies of it. Uh, my wife and I didn't, and we're trying to reassemble all that stuff to make it available from our site, uh, uh, robertmprice.mindvendor.com. Uh, but it's neither of us has a whole lot of time, and it's uh, kind of time-consuming. So I'm hoping by the summer we'll have all those, those courses and the Bible Geek episodes and even a couple of books available for sale on the, the site. Well, I look forward to that. Anyway, so you're an atheist, and you love the Bible, and you love theology. And I guess my question is, why? Uh, well, it just seems to me very fascinating. Now, I realize that's biographically uh, kind of a hangover from when I did believe in it, but when I was persuaded evangelical conservatism was wrong, I just take the opportunity to dump it. I found it so fascinating that I decided to look at all the other versions of it. I now have no religious beliefs, but I, I find that in reading Tillich and all these guys, there is some kind of fascinating uh, substance to that that I think the new atheists just don't grasp, and uh, and I'm not sure what to do with it, but I can't help but have great respect for it. and. Uh, it uh, it may be a self-referential language game, I don't know, but I just find it so interesting that I like to continue to explore it and understand it better. On the other hand, I'm at least as interested in the modern mythology of uh, Robert E. Howard's Conan, of uh, science fiction, of comic book superheroes. I love all of that stuff just as much, and I find it just as mind-expanding. So... Uh, it's uh, just to put it in context. I, I do love the Bible and theology. I go to church pretty regularly. I love the pageantry of the Episcopal Church and so on. But uh, I just don't feel like uh, uh, anything is required of me more than what Coleridge called the temporary willing suspension of disbelief, like when you go to a movie or something. Uh, I just really love singing the hymns and all of that stuff. And sometimes what they say is actually helpful. It just doesn't matter whether you literally believe this stuff or not, I find. Well, Dr. Price, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on.